Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to pick up, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 10 where we left off last time. And and continue along the same theme. In Matthew chapter 10, he is sending out the twelve disciples and he's sending them out two by two. And this follows on the heels of the last two verses of Matthew chapter 9 where he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then in Matthew chapter 10, it says, Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then it goes on and it names specifically the twelve disciples that he's sending on out. And then he goes and he describes to them what's about to confront them. He says in verse, for example, in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 10, And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In the end of Matthew's Gospel, as we looked at last time, comes what's, what's normally referred to as the Great Commission, where he says that all power on heaven and on earth has been granted unto him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them. So when he sends them out, it's interesting what he says. He says in verse 13, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace, but if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. I wonder why Jesus didn't say, if they don't receive you, apologize to them for offending them, and then kindly move on. And think twice about sharing with people again, because you might raise an offense. And offending people is one of the premier sins that you could ever commit. I wonder why he didn't say that. Well, maybe because it's not one of the premier sins that we could commit. And I wonder if offense is really that bad. Is offending a person as bad as what we would like it, as what would seem like in our culture today? And I have heard my faculty colleagues at Rice say that we should never speak about things that might offend a student. And I said to them, then how do you teach? Because whatever you teach, you can easily offend somebody. 
I mean, raising an offense is a very easy thing. I am from New York City. If you walk down the street in New York City and you look somebody in the eye, you will raise an offense. I guarantee it. And they will respond to you, Hey, what are you looking at? You raise an offense merely by looking them in the eye. Have you therefore sinned because you have raised in them an offense? How did Jesus handle offense when people were offended? An offense comes before an insult. You know, offense seems like a milder sort of attack than insulting. Insulting is almost as if there was malintent. Offense may come just sort of minding your own business, but you happen to look in the wrong direction or say the wrong thing. But an insult could even come from, from some sort of, of desire to do it. Now look, look in, in Luke, Luke chapter 11. This is a remarkable chapter. And so often I have to go back to this. And last week I spoke actually rather strongly about this sort of subject. And this week I planned, after reading a few scriptures, just to speak from myself to show you how nice I can really be. And just speak from my own heart about my own experiences. But let me, let me preface this by showing you the way Jesus was. This is Luke chapter 11. Verse 37. Now when he had spoken, <clears throat> a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. Okay, so let's look at the picture here. A Pharisee, so a, a, a religious teacher and religious leader, asks Jesus over for lunch. And Jesus is now reclining at the table. That's analogous to our sitting at the table. So they are sitting over the table of lunch at the Pharisee's home. So you would think that Jesus understands he is in another man's home. He'd better not raise an offense. You're in another man's home. You've been invited. So just, you know, if you've got something to say, bite your tongue. Just hold back right now. You can, you can hit this guy when he's out on the street with his friends and you're doing your street preaching and he comes and opposes you. Then, then go ahead and, 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 and preach. But you're in his home. Probably his wife is there making matzah and, and his children are there playing with dreidels and the whole family's there. This is the setting. Verse 38. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially, ceremonially washed before the meal. Now let me put this in context. There is no law in the Old Testament Scriptures, there were 613 commandments of Moses, none of them say that you have to wash in a prescribed way before you eat. All right? Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing to wash your hands well before you eat, but if you didn't wash your hands, how many of you washed your hands immediately before you ate this morning, the food that you just ate? Okay. All right, so just a few of you. All right? So that's not a bad thing to do. But there is no law that demands that. There is no sign there. Be sure to wash before eating. 
But there is a Mishnaic law that says Jews are to wash before they eat. They're to wash their hands. Jesus refused to live by the Mishnaic laws. And there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. And they remain today. And that bothered the Pharisees because the Pharisees were strong proponents of these laws. Jesus would live by the 613 commandments of Moses and fulfill them all so we don't have to fulfill them. But it bothered the Pharisees. And you would say, well, he's in the Pharisee's house. Maybe he should have done it. Well, he didn't. And he's God. And he chose not to. He didn't wash his hands. If you go with Orthodox Jews today, they will always wash their hands before they eat. If they come to your home, they won't eat from your home unless you have washed the plates in a certain way. Unless you've washed them with boiling hot water. And unless you've been sure to keep the milk separate from the meat. So when Jesus didn't wash his hands, and the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he hadn't ceremonially washed. But he never said anything. He was, it was just surprise. But Jesus knows what's in the heart. In verse 39, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. Whoa. He's in the man's house. You talk about offense. I mean, Jesus was a pretty tough guy. Now, it doesn't stop there. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is is within its charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and people who walk over them are unaware of it. I mean, isn't this a bit much? He was just invited over for lunch. And the man didn't even say anything to him. He was just surprised that Jesus didn't wash his hands before he just... You know, Jesus probably just sat there and said, Let's dig in. And the man started thinking, just to himself, he forgot to wash his hands. And Jesus, perceiving in his heart that it bothered the Pharisees, just began to lay into him. And didn't just deal with the issue of washing hands. He didn't just say, look, you you know, hands can be dirty, but, but, you know, the more important thing is our heart. To make sure that our heart is clean before God. That's the more important thing. So even if it was a message, he could have come across in a much nicer way. But he says to them, he says, you Pharisees. So obviously it wasn't just that Pharisee that invited some of his other Pharisees. He said, you Pharisees, you guys. Not my disciples over here, but you Pharisees. He singled them out. This is a message to the Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you're full of robbery and wickedness. 
How does he know I'm a robber? Well, because he sees in my heart. Who is he to say I'm a robber? Who is he to say I'm wicked? I mean, I just invited him to my home. I thought that was pretty kind. Look at what Jesus is doing. This really wasn't very Christian. I mean, good Christians don't do this type of thing. Good Christians are very aware of other people's feelings. And they wouldn't say anything to hurt another's feelings, right? Good Christians don't do that. Obviously, Mary and Joseph didn't spend a lot of time teaching Jesus these matters. And then he doesn't start, stop there. He says, but give that which is within his charity and then all things are clean for you. Then he starts going, whoa, whoa, woe to you Pharisees. He says, you know, you pay tithe on everything, but you forget the greater things of justice and love. He says, but these things you should have done without neglecting the others. You know, I've heard believers take this and say, you see, Jesus is saying you don't have to do it as long as you have love and justice. No, he says, you should have love and justice without neglecting the tithing on the other. He says, so continue your tithing, but you've forgotten love and justice. He says, woe to you. You know, you guys love to sit up at the front of the synagogue. What does this have to do with anything? I was just wondering about you not washing your hands before you ate. Why are you picking on the seats where I sit in church? I mean, isn't this a bit strong? Isn't this a bit of an, you know, sort of in-your-face type of thing? We know good Christians should never be in the face of others. Good Christians don't do that, right? Obviously, Jesus never really learned, never took a course in evangelism. Or cross-cultural cross behavior and how to deal with other cultures so you don't raise offense. He never went to mission training, obviously. And he said, you know, you love it when people give you respectful greetings in the marketplace. Good afternoon, Professor. I like that. You know? Then I, you know, I, I, I walk in the lab and I hear, I hear different things about what students say about me because they don't know I'm coming. Tour said this. Tour said that. <laughs> then come around the corner. Oh, hi, Professor. <laughs> it's okay. I've been there. And tour is one of the nicer things that I've heard. <laughs> But he said, you love these respectful greetings in the marketplaces. He says, but woe to you. You're like concealed tombs. And people who walk over them are unaware of it. He said, you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, this is a strong response. Now, there weren't just lawyers there at that lunch, or just Pharisees there at that lunch. There were also lawyers. And we can, see, we can understand why Jesus would pick on lawyers. I mean, <laughs> we can understand that today. But actually, these weren't lawyers like the lawyers we have today. These, these, these were masters of the law. I guess maybe they were like lawyers that we have today. But anyway, so there were some lawyers at this, at this lunch too. And how do we know? Because it says in verse 45, 
One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. So Jesus replies, I am very sorry for insulting you. That was not my intent. My intent is never to offend and certainly not to insult. Good Christians don't do that, Jesus said. Not. That's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say to this lawyer? But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well! For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. I mean, not only is he attacking them, he's attacking their fathers. I mean, that's analogous to us attacking somebody's mother. It's the same sort of thing. Same idea here. You know, this gets very, very personal, doesn't doesn't it? You know, we should never get personal as Christians. Because a person's faith is a personal thing. And never touch a personal thing. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers. Because I, because it was they who killed them. And you built their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. What do you think of that? I mean, nobody was going to ever say to Jesus again, you insulted me. Nobody. He said, you lawyers are responsible for the death of every prophet from Abel, remember Adam and Eve's son, to Zechariah. That's like our saying from Genesis to Revelation. Our Old Testament is the same as the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, except our order of scriptures are different. They go from Genesis to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is their last book. They have our other books of the Old Testament stuck in between. Second Chronicles is their last book, and Zechariah was the last to die there. So what he's saying from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, the whole thing, the whole Tanakh, you are responsible for every death of every prophet. Me? And my fathers? Me? What do I have to do with this? I just said you insulted me. A good Christian would apologize. Have I set this in context for you? This is our Lord. This is what we're asked to follow. So remember, if you think that what I am teaching you is a bit extreme, it is kindergarten in relation to the way our Lord responded. Let me share with you a few things about, about the feeling I get when I share Christ openly on campus. I get a queasy feeling in my stomach when I do this. I don't know if this happens to you. 
some people think that I am bulletproof. And I can say things and I don't get that feeling like gulp or uh-oh, now I've really done it. No, I get this feeling all the time. I really get this feeling all the time. When I was an assistant professor, for some strange reason, on the very first exam I gave, I put at the top of it, at a state university, a large state university when I was an assistant professor, I put a scripture verse. And I've continued to do that to this day. I'm not sure why I did it, but I wanted to be a witness. I really did. And I thought it'd be a neat way of being a witness. But I did it with a lot of fear and trepidation because I'm really just like you. I was really a bit scared when I did it. But I did it anyway. And then the second exam, I did it again. And then I did it again and again. And so I've been doing it now for 18 years, putting scripture verses at the top of my exams. Except once or twice when they gave me grief about it, and then I put other things at the top of my exams, which offended them much more than scripture verses. And you say, for example, what could offend them more than a scripture verse? Well, when, when the administration pointed it out that I was putting scripture verses at the top, they didn't say I couldn't, but they pointed it out thinking that I don't know what they thought, as if I didn't know. (laughs) I then put a quote from George Washington at the top of one of my exams. And normally the scripture verses that I put don't talk too much about Jesus. They're usually, usually something from the Old Testament Psalms, something very encouraging. You know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, or... or, um, there's something about love or something really quite innocuous. But I, I happened to put a scripture, a, a, a quote of George Washington that he said over this country and dedicating this country into the hands of the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's a long, long, it's a paragraph I put at the top of a chemistry exam. I don't teach religion classes. Then I put the quote there, George Washington. And then I sent a message to the administration with the quote and said, this is a quote of the father of our country. What kind of Americans are you? Or would you like to decide what part of George Washington I could quote and what parts I couldn't quote? Now, no administration would ever touch that one. But I just thought it was kind of neat. And I sent that to the university chief counsel. And he never responded to me. I got a queasy feeling in my stomach when I did it. Just like you do. And then I started handing out these little sheets at one point in my career and so, so people think, people, so, something that I did more recently, somebody said, well, you, you do it, and that's because you have now this very big, high position of responsibility, and so you have to be really careful about doing it because you can influence people. And I told them, well, I was doing this sort of thing since I was a student, when I had like 
no great position of responsibility, and they still came at me with reasons why I shouldn't be doing it. And when I was an assistant professor, there were all these reasons why I shouldn't be doing it. So there were always reasons that people are going to throw at us why we shouldn't be doing things like this. I handed out this sheet with my personal testimony on it about who I am as a Christian, and I, I left it at the at the front desk as students were handing in their final exams and I told them up here is a gift from me to you you can take it if you want it's not course related and at the top it said photocopied at Kinko's at personal expense the reason I did that is if you turn back to Matthew chapter 10 in verse 16 it says Matthew 10:16, behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, I just wanted to be sure that they wouldn't accuse me of using university resources to hand out these personal sheets. And so when the administration apparently brought me in, they brought me in and the dean talked to me, he said, Jim, I hate to tell you this, but the provost has talked to me and asked me to talk to you about this because you've handed out this sheet and it could be offensive to some students. And I said, you know, Jerry, what is it that we could tell students that wouldn't offend some of them? Tell me, I'd like to know. He said, Jim, I agree with you. He says, I agree with you, and I agree with you on all of this stuff. And, and, and uh, I said, do you really? He says, yes, I do. I said, well, isn't it interesting that you and I, me, the, the professor of chemistry, and you, the dean of the College of Science and Mathematics, can agree on all of these things in your office, but we can't step out of your office and say that? Don't you find that odd? And he couldn't respond to me. And I said, this was copied at personal expense, and they didn't have to take it. Unlike what was told to you, it was not distributed. Whoever took it, took it from the front desk. And I told them what it was, and they took it. And he says, the university council thinks you might have broken the law. So I wrote a letter to the university council and pointed out exactly what the law says. And I said, will you cite for me what law I have broken? But let me cite for you what law you might be breaking by restricting me. And he met with me. He said, I think you're right. And that was the end of it. Now, many of you would say, well, I've I've somehow ostracized the administration. When I was leaving that state university, the president brought me into his office and he brought me before his entire staff and he said, and I didn't know that he was going to do this, and he said, you want to know why we've been blessed all these years as a university? It's because of this man right here and because of his witness on this campus. People see things and they respect things. People will respect you for your bold witness. There may be people that give you reasons why you shouldn't do it. And you always get a queasy feeling. Recently, I gave out 75 copies of books. I put these books, it is this book, Who is Adam? And in it, I put this quote of Rick Smalley, who shortly before he died, told me if the scientific community would read this book, 50% of them would become Christians. This book, Who is Adam? So I read the book, and I thought it was a good book. I didn't quite agree with them that 50% of the scientists would become Christians, but I thought, let's give it a try. So I put this quote in the front of the book, and I wrote, Dear so-and-so, and and I signed my name. 
and I put it in every mailbox of every faculty member in chemistry, and I gave a copy to all the people in the carbon nanotechnology laboratory. And so that was 70 or 75 copies, something like that. And I could see it on faculty members' faces the next afternoon. They were looking at me a bit differently. And I had a queasy feeling in my stomach, like you get, because I'm really very much like you. But compared to what Jesus did, do you see that this is really kindergarten? You may say, well, you you offended that Jewish man. Now remember, I'm a Jew, okay? So, But you offended that Jewish man. Well, the Jewish man can throw it out. If he doesn't want it, he can throw it out. There's a lot of stuff that's stuck in our mailboxes that we don't like. If he doesn't like it, he can give it back. I'll give it to somebody else. But is there a milder way of doing it than to just put something in their mailbox and saying, this is a gift from me to you? Could I have been more mild? Compared to Jesus, wasn't I in nursery school compared to the way Jesus was? And yet, even with that, one faculty member says, you know, I appreciate the book. In fact, I'm reading it. But, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate this. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? If they don't appreciate the gift, they can give it back. We all get gifts we don't appreciate. We do. I get lots of gifts. Yes, yeah, Shireen's pointing at me. You, 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 know, you know this. Lo- different people have love la- different love languages. You've read this book, and some people love getting gifts. I don't particularly care about gifts. It just clutters my home, I feel. And I have all these wonderful students from Asia that bring me gifts. And, you know, some dragon or something. or you know, it's, it's all the same sort of thing. And, you know, I, it's like, what am I going to do with this? And I come home and I give it to Shireen. It's just, I, I, that's not the way I, I, I sense it. So we all get gifts that we don't necessarily appreciate. So what do you do? You know, sometimes I just take the gift, I say thank you, and they go and I just toss it. I do. I mean, I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to clutter the office. I'm just being honest with you. I just toss it. They don't like the book, let them throw it out. And he says, well, you know, you, you have this big position now. You're director of the Carbon Nanotechnology Laboratory. I'm like, well, big deal. Since I was an assistant professor, people have been giving me reasons why I shouldn't do this. Since I was a student, people have been giving me reasons why I shouldn't do it. I sent a copy, by the way, to the president as well, and to the provost as well, and to the dean. And the provost, pardon and the provost wrote, wrote me a really nice note. He says, I will definitely read this book. He says, I want you to know I'm not a blank slate, but I'll certainly give it a read. It was nice of him. So anyway, I walk into the faculty meeting two days after I hand out this book, and, and I could sense it. You know, this is like, you know, all the eyes turn on me as if I've done something terribly evil. Now remember, this is why I gave you this. Compared to Jesus, this is nothing. I didn't come walking into faculty meeting and say, woe to you! Chemistry professors. No, I didn't do that. And I just sat down. And all these eyes shifting back and forth. And then, it was so wonderful, one woman turns to me, one British woman, she turns to me and she says, why, thank you so much for that book that was in my mailbox. What a delightful book. But I haven't had a chance to read it because as soon as I went home, my husband grabbed it and he's devouring it. He's very inquisitive. He loves to learn. And as soon as he's done, I'm going to read it. But thank you. 
I'm looking around with a big grin. Anybody else want to thank me? <laughs> you know, God is so gracious. You know, and then I felt like the whole air was cleared. These guys felt like a bunch of buffoons. They should be thanking me for a gift. Here's a hardcover book. These things don't come cheap. And it, you know, God is just, just, just changes the dynamic of it. But I still get that queasy feeling like you get. But He's called us to do this. Jesus said, do this. And then in Matthew chapter 10, He says in verse 23, But whenever they persecute you in the city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Look what happens. He says, whenever they persecute you, it means you have witnessed in a wrong way, therefore shut up next time. Because if you had done it right, they would all be Christians by now. No, he says when they persecute you, just go on to the next. And they persecute you there, go on to the next. Just go on. And when people say to me, hey, you know, this is offensive to me, all right? It's offensive. You know, I get hurt inside. I really do. Just like you, I get hurt inside. But what am I supposed to do? Go to my office and suck my thumb and have a pity party? And say, Lord, what did I do wrong? I just shared with him because that's how he told me to do that. And look what's happened. It's such a mess now. Is that what I'm supposed to do? No, Jesus warned me. That this is going to happen. Some people are going to reject you. He says, you know what you do? Go to the next. Go to the next city. That's what he says to do. And in this way, you get over your pity party really quickly. You just go on to the next person. A disciple, in verse 24, is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? If they call Jesus the head of the demons, how much more will they malign you and me? Jesus warns us, this is going to come. This is going to come. This is part of a Christian life. He warns us about this. Verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Those are pretty strong words. If you confess him before men, he will confess you before his Father. There's another verse that says, He was ashamed of me in this sinful and perverse generation. I will be ashamed of Him when I come in the glory of my Father and His angels. If we are ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of us. He will not introduce us to His Father and His angels because He will be so ashamed of us. Look in Luke. Keep your finger there, but look in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verse 26. Woe to you, Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. 
Woe to you if all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the, same prof- the, the false prophets in the same way. Remember what Jesus said, If you do not confess me, I will not confess you. If we know the truth... Well, it, it says in, 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 back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And we may want to argue, Well, look, I haven't denied him. I just didn't speak up. If we know the truth and do not speak, we are false prophets. If we know the truth and we do not speak, we are false prophets. Because we speak lies with our silence. With our silence, we speak lies. This is really what I think. With our silence, we speak lies and we are false prophets. And because I like everybody to speak well of me, and I really do because I have feelings just like you, and my feelings get hurt just like your feelings do. You know that queasy feeling after you've shared and you think, now I've really blown it. I get that same feeling. I really do. And you think, no, I'm bulletproof. And I just laugh. Ha, 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 ha. I glory in this. You know, come on. Let me have more. No, it hurts me the same way. You know, when I put an ad in the newspaper in the thresher at Rice, and I know it's hit the newspaper, I don't think too much about it, because if I do, as I'm walking around campus, I think people are looking at me a bit funny. I get that same feeling you do. But we are false prophets if we do not speak. If we know the truth, but we do not speak, we are false prophets. Because we want all men to speak well of us. And Jesus then says, Woe to you if all men speak well of you. I get that same feeling. The other thing that I have found is that people really envy what we have and they really respect our ability to speak up for what we stand for. You know, Rick Smalley's wife tells me all the time now that he's gone that Rick, long before he ever came, became a believer, envied my family very much and the family situation that I had. So here's this Nobel Prize winner who's had four wives and, you know, all the glory of the world and lots of women and lots of girlfriends and he envied what I have. And I have noticed that about many of my colleagues They hear this guy who preaches Jesus. They really envy what I have. Children that will talk to me. A home, a wife, and a family where there's warmth and people coming through. And They really envy what we have as believers. And we think, oh, they're against us. You know, when you speak up, people then will begin to watch you. And they'll watch the quality of the life that you have and they'll envy it. That's something I've come to see. Jesus said, you know, when they speak bad of you, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. This is what He told us to do. He told us to do this. Look in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. So look what He says. Do not fear. Do not fear. Look in verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed. He says, do not fear. Look down in verse 31. 
So do not fear. Three times he tells us, do not fear. Why do you think he tells us, do not fear? Because we have a propensity not to fear? No, because we have a propensity to fear. So he says, do not fear. Jesus doesn't waste words. He really doesn't. Jesus is not into wasting. Jesus is really quite economical. And knowing that there were going to be lots of Bibles produced, he didn't want to duplicate words that didn't need duplicating. He told us three times in one paragraph, do not fear, because we have this propensity to fear. This is normal. And he tells us we must keep coming. Compared to Jesus, I guarantee you, you cannot be more in their face than Jesus was. You cannot. Jesus had just gone over for lunch. It was just a quiet lunch with this Jewish family. He's just having lunch. I mean, Jesus, don't, don't talk like that. There's children here. They might hear you. Don't use those three-letter words, whoa, around children. I mean, Jesus said it like it is. This is what He calls us to. And then there is this tremendous reward in John chapter 12. And we're going to end there. John chapter 12. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who had gone up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew and Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Okay, so, there was the Passover feast. Some Greeks had come and they said, we want to see Jesus, so they spoke to Philip. Philip went and told his brother, Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip came and said, hey, Jesus, there's, there's some Greeks here that want to see you. And Jesus knew it was the end because everybody had come to Jerusalem to see the crucifixion, that they were about to witness a crucifixion. But anyway, Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who loses his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Look what Jesus says. He says, unless you're willing to die, you will never bear fruit. Unless you're willing to die, you will never bear fruit. There is no other way. Unless you're willing to have that queasy feeling and to be embarrassed and to have eyes looking at you. There is no other way. You know, death is not an easy thing, but he uses that as the analogy. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. We can keep our mouths shut. We really can. But if we love our life, we will lose it. 
but he who loses his life for my sake will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him come to me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you serve God, the Father will honor you. I think that I have lost so much honor from God in my life for times I have not stood up for the Lord. And I say, God, forgive me. There is so much more honor, so much more blessing I could have brought upon my life from God had I taken a stand. I never regret the times that I've spoken for the Lord. I do for the moment. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? But afterward, I never regret it. You know, the things that I remember is when I didn't speak up, when there were situations that arose and I just kept my mouth shut and I should have spoken up. Those times, I remember, 20 years later, I remember the times that I didn't speak up. And those were times that I didn't bring down from heaven glory upon my own life and blessing. Because Jesus said, whoever serves me, the Father will honor him. And Jesus acknowledges it's not easy. He says, now my soul has become troubled. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Your family is still in in, uh, Afghanistan. You know, I I look at this Ekoff family and I'm like, the glory that is coming upon this family... Her mom and dad are in Afghanistan. They, they lived for many years in Haiti, taking care of orphans and caring for them. They're both physicians. Aren't they both physicians? And now they're in Afghanistan, taking care of women, is it? Or people? Or? Okay, so they're working in a medical school in Afghanistan. And that's, that's not the only place they could be employed, trust me. And... You look at this family and the quality in these young people's lives. This mom and dad have brought down blessings upon blessings upon their children by living a life giving to the Lord. I mean, your little sister. You look, you, you look at, 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 I look at your little sister. I don't even remember her name. What's her name? Grace. This girl just overflows with God. She'd grab you and start showing you these PowerPoint slides of all these kids in Haiti that they're caring for. You know, and then, and then uh, uh, she runs off to Afghanistan to work with her mom and dad. I mean, just the life that flows from these people, from this family. You give to the Lord. You devote your life to service to God. You will see blessings brought down from heaven upon your children. Selfishness from our lives in service to the Lord is the best way to cut off blessing in our own life and in our children's life. And when we serve God, we just call down blessing because Jesus said, by the way, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And Jesus is speaking very specifically here. When you love your life, you lose it. But when you lose your life for my sake, you will keep it to life eternal. When we speak up for the Lord, we call down blessing upon our lives and blessing upon our children. And this is what the scriptures tell us about witnessing. And this is what he told his disciples when he sent them out. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for the words of God. That Jesus was our example. And he did not mess around when it came to preaching the gospel. And he witnessed this. And he put words before us that are so direct. He said, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you don't confess me, I won't confess you. Lord, I thank you. Because you were so explicit, you could not have been more so. Thank you. And I pray, oh God, for these young people. And Lord, I know that there's somebody here who's just stirring in their hearts because they've gone far from you. Father, I pray that you would draw that person to yourself. That this day their heart would break before you for neglecting you and neglecting your word. And for doubting you. And that their heart would be broken before you and they would beat their breasts and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. And that they would come into your kingdom this day. Save their soul this day, I pray. Save his soul this day, I pray. Father, let it be like a burning fire within his heart until he yields it to you and feels the cleansing blood of the Son of God shower over him. For you have risen from the dead to make intercession on our behalf. And Father, I pray that you would take these young people and in spite of that fear and that queasy feeling that they would speak your word, lest they be false prophets and everyone speak well of them and they deny you by their silence. Father, forgive me for the times that I have denied you through my silence. You are a wonderful, wonderful Lord. Thank you for modeling this to us. In the name of Jesus.